Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years. The first two years of Risk episodes, the ones from October 2009 to October 2011, were behind a paywall for a while. So now, every other Thursday, we're rerunning them for free. We ask that you keep the historical context in mind. Today, in 2021, there's a different consciousness. We've always asked storytellers to speak in as unfiltered a way as possible, and yet to tell their stories with as much compassion as possible. Even so, I'm sure the storytellers and the host might have worded some of what they said on these old episodes differently if they'd been recorded more recently. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, the third episode from our second year, it premiered in November of 2010, and it's called The Chase. I'm talking about taking a risk. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. 
I'm Kevin Allison, that was Dan Lubell up top, and this is Sean Lee behind me now with a track called The Chase. Pretty apt choice for an episode called The Chase. That's because today's stories shine a light on the pursuits of pursuers and the pursued. And I sure as shit don't see why we why we shouldn't start with Carrie Heidecker. The freak magnet herself. A pretty apt choice for a story we call The Freak Magnet. The story about the chase that I'm going to tell you took place many years ago when I was in college. When I was at school, I went and I transferred stupidly, blindly, because I was trying to escape the one school that I was at. I went to a different school, and it was a college that was down uh, closer to Philadelphia in Pennsylvania and it was just a, a random choice literally a you know a blind choosing and I went and I picked it and I really didn't fit in there at all you know weirdly people thought that I stood out you know amongst others and especially at this school because everyone that was there was very much you know shopping at Abercrombie and going to the Gap you know, wearing bright colors, and I haven't worn colors since 1999. So, uh, you know, it was difficult for me to really integrate into this school. So there was one other person there, though, at the school who was also kind of an enigma. She didn't really fit in. Uh, she was a, what they called a lifelong learner, which was, you know, an older individual who was going back to school for a different degree. And her name was Joanna. She was my same major. We were both English majors. And she also wore a lot of black. In fact, she dressed a lot like Stevie Nicks. And she had this really long, black, witchy hair. And also uh, these strange, I still don't really know why they were like this, like claw-like hands that were always, you know, kind of perpetually deformed. Like I would wonder, you know, is it arthritis? Like what is it? But I never really knew. Uh, So we were in a lot of classes together and we were in a creative writing class and she would always write these strange things that no one really understood. Um, And so people would just kind of smile politely and go, oh, well, that was nice. And the one time she actually wrote this beautiful piece about her husband and her son and her daughter, and it was really beautiful. And so when she workshopped it, I said, I really loved your piece. And she said, oh, you know, thank you. And then she said, I I always loved your pieces too. (laughs) Okay. Um, So... I said, thank you, you know, thank you, Joanna. So I was leaving the class, and I was walking back to my dorm. And it was, it was snowing. It was kind of like a really slushy, horrible Pennsylvania day. And as I was walking back, she pulls up in her car. And she said, would you like a ride? I was like, sure. You know, I didn't want to walk in the slush any longer. And so I got into the car, and we were driving and talking about, you know, our major and our class and whatnot. And... Um, I said, oh, there's my dorm, you know, and we pulled over to the side uh, because there was a stop sign, and I said, thanks so much for the ride, and she grabs me with her claw hand, and she said, no, I'm not done yet, and I was like, Joanna, (laughs) no, Um, and so... I reached my hand to the door to get out, and I said, no, really, we can talk another time. And with that, I look, and the power locks go down. 
And I'm like, someone has just locked me in the car. And so I was sitting there really thinking to myself, like, this is disturbing. But I was kind of also curious because I, I have a weird curiosity where I try to, I'm like interested in bizarre situations anyhow. So I was like, well, this could be interesting. Um, you know, one of these days that decision-making process is gonna end me like in a dumpster, you know, <laughs> murdered. Um, but for right then, you know, I was like, this is strange. And so Joanna said, I need to take you to my house because I have something that I wanna show you. And I was, you know, I mean, wouldn't you be somewhat interested? So I was like, Joanna, what? You know, and she said, no, it must wait. So. We went to her house, which, you know, I was expecting it to look like something out of the Adams family or something, but in fact, it was disturbingly normal. You know, it was just like a traditional split-level house. And I was like, oh, Joanna, okay. So we go inside, and Joanna brings out one of these old photo albums, the ones that have, like, the vinyl pages that, you know, are, like, yellowing and terrible. And she says, look, I want to show you this. I've made this for you. And so I, I opened the book, you know, tentatively, and here are all the stories that I've written in this creative writing class, all carefully preserved under these vinyl yellowing sheets. And so I'm, I'm flipping and I said, oh, Joanna, there's just so many of them here. Wow, you've really been following my writing for a long time. Joanna said, oh, for a very long time. Uh, and so I get to the end, you know, of the writing, and I see there are clippings. Clippings of reviews of shows I was in, or, you know, uh, articles about me that were, had been in the, in the campus paper and things like that. I'm like, oh, Joanna, <laughs> it's a scrapbook of things about me. And then I turn to the last page, and it's a row of Polaroids. And in the Polaroids, of course, I'm the only subject, but I'm never looking at the camera. And I said, Joanna, when were these taken? And Joanna said, over a period of months. You had no idea. That's the best part. I took them when you weren't looking. Um, and I was, I mean, I was horrified. But I, I was also like, to what depths does a crazy person go? You know, I was, I was intrigued. I said, why me, Joanna? Why me? And she said, you know, I've just been fascinated by, there's something about you. There's something about you. <laughs> and, um, and I was just like, thanks. Uh, so, you know, she, we get back in the car. We go back to college, um, <laughs> back to reality. And yeah, I'm allowed to keep the book. I still have it. And I think nothing more about Joanna. You know, I, I tell the story to some people in my dorm. I'm like, why don't you hear this? <laughs> you know, Joanna, guess what she made for me? Um, but I don't actually ever, uh, you know, really interact with her again. I'm afraid to ever tell her I like anything in the class. So I pretty much just kind of avoid meeting her eyes. But, you know, occasionally if I look up in, the, in this class, I see her. She's, she's looking at me sometimes. And she's smiling, and I'm like, oh, God. Um, oh, God, Joanna. So the semester ends, and I decide, what the hell, you know? Might as well stay one more semester at this college before I transfer. So I stay, and in the fall, I go to my mailbox in the intercampus mail. 
And, you know, you get so excited at college when somebody sends you a parcel. So I'm, I see that there's a parcel. I'm like, oh, somebody send me something. I'm so psyched. So I go and I get it, and I open it up, and it's the strangest thing. It's a little, and when I say little, I mean it's probably about this big, wax doll of me. And I know it's me because A, I had blonde spiky hair at the time. It has little spiky hair that has been carefully formed out of wax. It's wearing all black and it comes with an index card that says, here is Carrie reading. And I'm like, oh God. So of course I know who it is because how many other people are sending me that? Um, so I'm a little bit horrified. So again, you know, it's a little funny. We laugh. My friends were like, ah, you get a wax doll till the next one comes. And the next one says, here is Carrie writing. Over the next few months, I get 12 of them. Here is Carrie running. I knew that one was false because I never did that. And each one was stranger than the last in their little sculpture. And I, you know, I used to line them on my windowsill and then my roommate said, stop, stop. Um, so then I put them in a shoebox, which is where they still are, in my house somewhere. So I get 12 of these dolls and I'm like, this is totally weird. I don't even see Joanna on campus anymore. I think she's graduated, but she still knows me. So it's, the whole thing is bizarre. I end up finally leaving the school. We knew it had to eventually happen. And I graduate. I move to a different town. I change my major entirely. I go back to school to be a teacher. And I get a teaching job in a different city. My first day of teaching, I go into my mailbox. Different city. It's been four years since Joanna. I go to my mailbox. There's a parcel. I take it out. I open it up. And, of course, it's a doll. And it says, here is Carrie, teaching. And I'm like, she knows, she knows. And it's wrapped in something. And I'm like, what is it wrapped in? It's a little towel. Here it's a dish towel embroidered with Joanna's initials and mine. I never hear from Joanna again. Uh, but I never doubt that she's somewhere lurking around. She could be here. Look around. There might be someone here. Claw hands. That's how you can define it. She may be in this room. And I feel that maybe someday, maybe next week, she could send me a doll and it could say something like, here's Carrie at risk. And you just never know. Thank you so much. okay we have to have that car open and ready because she has an issue with the car she doesn't want to be part of it so I needed to make sure her mind was in a very forward mode and then 
keep moving, keep moving, keep moving, and then just go inside the car. Just the fact that she put her two feet on the bumper, that told me, okay, so she's not against the car. It's, she was against more of the way she went into the car. So, okay, how can I help her to feel invited to go into the car? When I was 11, my mom, my brother, and I were visiting the Livingston Mall in New Jersey, and we were walking through the parking lot, and I was totally engrossed in my Sweet Valley High book. I was 11, and reading about these teenage girls was like total fantasy to me. And my brother was 10. He wasn't quite ready for that sort of thing, and he was probably obsessing about ninjas as we were walking through the parking lot. So we got in the car and my mom turned to me and my brother immediately and said, do you see that car over there? Do not lose sight of that car. And then she started acting like this crazed, obsessive woman. And she started following the car out of the parking lot and onto the street. And my brother and I, at this point, had snapped to attention and were saying, mom, what is going on? Why are we following this car? And the thing was, this wasn't totally out of character for my mom. My mom was always sort of making up funny stories and following her imagination and taking us on different adventures. She would take us to nude beaches that we would have to climb down rocky cliffs to get to. And she would take us to Times Square where my brother and I would keep a running count of prostitutes because they were so novel to us. In fact, sometimes we would be riding in the car and we'd be on the highway and she would scream at the top of her lungs out of the blue. And my brother and I would get really freaked out and we'd go, mom, what's the matter? What's the matter? And she'd say, nothing. I just felt like screaming. And so my brother and I, even though my mom was really intently following this car, we didn't know if it was something serious or if my mom was just kind of goofing around with us. So as we were following it, my mom said, well, when we walked past that car, there were two women standing outside of it. And there was this man facing them. And the man said, get in the car. And the women shook their heads and said, no. And then the man said again, get in the car. And the women just shut up and got in the car. So we're driving along and we're following this car. And my mom says next, okay, I'm going to pull up alongside the car. I want both of you to look inside and tell me what you see. And so she pulled up and my brother and I started peeking inside the car. The first thing that I saw were the two women sitting in the front seat. And they were both staring straight ahead. They never once looked at each other. They never once said a word. They were totally silent and staring ahead. And the woman who was driving the car was chewing gum, and she was chewing it really, really stiffly. And I remember thinking that there was something about the way that the two of them looked, but there was something about the gum in particular just told me how frightened they were. And I looked into the back seat, and I saw a man crouching, and it looked like he was holding a knife in his hand. And you couldn't see him unless you had actually craned your neck to look into the car. So we told my mom what we saw in the car. And she said, okay, I'm going to pull the car back now. And I want you both to get the license plate number. So I write down the license plate number in the back cover of my Sweet Valley High book. And so she immediately pulled over and ran in to call the police. So we're waiting and waiting, and I look across, and I notice way across the parking lot, there is a police car parked at a red light. So we scramble out of the car, and we start racing across the parking lot. Our arms are flailing, and we're yelling, stop, stop, don't leave. And 
by some miracle, the police officer doesn't actually drive away. He stays in his car at the green light. And my brother and I keep running and we make our way over to his passenger window. And when I get there, I see that he's already got his passenger window down, that he must have seen us and he had stopped and he was waiting for us. And my mom comes out of the liquor store and she explains everything that she's seen to him. And so he immediately radios it in. So now that that's been done, he starts getting our contact information. He starts getting our names and he starts getting our home address. And as he's doing that, he looks over at my mom's license plate and he looks back at my mom and he gives her kind of an odd look. And we all know why he's giving my mom this odd look. We have out-of-state license plates and they're vanity plates and they say Amber and my mom's name is not Amber. We had just recently moved from California, and my mom had already discovered that she could explain anything away to anyone from New Jersey by saying, I'm from California. And for whatever reason, my mom doesn't feel comfortable telling him the truth, which is that she's a stripper, and Amber is her stripper name. So instead, she just says to him, oh, I'm from California. And the police officer looks at her, and kind of nods, and he says, okay. So my brother and I were waiting in the back seat of our car, and our mom was in the back of the police car, and she returned to our car and got in the driver's seat and turned on the car and said, we're free to go now. And my brother and I were dying to know what had happened, and so we said, mom, what happened? What's going on? Did they save those women? And she said, well, I don't know. I was just sitting in the back of the police car, And I heard over the radio one of the cops say, those girls can really thank that lady. So we never found out any more information about what had happened that night, but I've always wanted to know what actually happened with these women. What have they been doing for the past 23 years? And I've always wanted to talk to them and to compare notes about what their experience of that night was and what our experience was. And what might have been if my mom hadn't actually intervened. is Risk, bringing a happy ending to a kind of creepy string of tracks. Uh, We heard DJ Lobster Dust, one of 50 sound collage artists who made 50-second long tracks for an amazing album called 5050. Check it out at some-assembly-required.net. Before that, 
a story by writer April Salazar called The Adventurer. We heard some words of wisdom from none other than the Dog Whisperer. And that followed Dog Bowl with a track called Stalker. If you've never heard his amazing album, Flan, uh, it's not all creepy. (laughs) Check it out at dogbowl.com. This is Thick Business behind me now. Okay, we put the ladies first today, so let us now hear from the menfolk among us. John Friedman is a writer and performer on Late Night with Jimmy Fallon, and he has a book out, Rejected, Tales of the Failed, Dumped, and Canceled. It's all stuff first presented at the Rejection Show in New York that John hosts. We call his story... The Sound of Silence. So my chase tonight, I'm going to talk about the time I tried to book Michael Winslow on my show. (laughs) Not Carl Winslow from Family Matters. That is a fictional character. This is Michael Winslow, who uh, was in Police Academy, and he was in Spaceballs. He's the guy who makes all the sound effects. You know that guy, right? You guys know who I'm talking about? Okay, good. A lot of you do. Good. I was mentioning this to friends, and they all think I'm talking about Carl Winslow, and it makes no sense, and I just realized that recently, so I'm glad I remembered to specify that. Uh, so anyway, this was at a time where my own show was like kind of taking off uh, my personal situation. I had been a writer's assistant on a show for Comedy Central, which had just been canceled, so I needed to uh, find a job because I wanted to keep doing my show. It was growing and growing, and I needed some income. And I was venting about this on Father's Day with my family, and my uncle heard what I was saying, and he said, why don't you come work for me? And he owned three buildings in Soho, like three big high-rises with businesses in them and stuff. And I said, all right, what, what will I do? And he said, you could operate our freight elevator. So, you know, my parents were there, and I just got let go from a job, and I was pursuing comedy, and a job was being offered to me. And my parents and my Jewish mother are like, what's the answer going to be? Are you going to... So I was like, okay, I'll work for you as a freight elevator operator. So anyway... Long story short, on that, I started operating a freight elevator. My first day there, I had no idea what I was doing. Like, you move it with the lever, and you have to get it even with the floor. And first few people I took up, it was like, like I couldn't get the floor right. And I'm going on throughout my day, and I, I suddenly realized I'd forgotten my uncle owns the building that the Onion offices are in. And at that point, I had had like the writers from The Onion on my show. I'm friendly with a bunch of the staff and everything. And this was the type of job I just wanted to be under the radar just to make some money. Like, uh, <laughs> So I found out what I had to do at the end of the day was empty out all the garbages from all the offices as, as the last thing I do. So I had to step into the Onion office, like sort of in a custodian outfit, and um, 
empty their garbages. And I really, like, I know these people, and they're, I really think I heard someone say, why is John Friedman emptying our garbages? Uh, so anyway, that was pretty humiliating. Um, and I did that job for seven months. Like, just, like, I barely spoke to them while I had that job. But outside of the job, I was like, what's up, man? It's nice to see you. Uh, and then there were other, others who, who didn't know me, and throughout the course of time of me working there, I had booked The Onion again on my show. And the ones that didn't know me were on the show. So it was the opposite. They were like, why is the freight elevator operator hosting this show? <laughs> so anyway, that's where I was at this point in my life uh, when I wanted to book Michael Winslow on the show. The, the, the caliber of guests I was getting was increasing. I had just... I'd always been a fan of the Howard Stern show, and I got Jackie Martling to come on my show. He was a longtime writer for that show, and I, I, obviously I had The Onion. I had, I've been a fan of Jonathan Ames for a long time, and I just emailed him, and I, I said, I do this show, please come on, and he, he said yes, and he came on, and so I was excited about the way it was all progressing, and I started to get a little cocky uh, on who I could book. I just felt like I could book anyone I want with this show. This show idea is the best. Anyone will come. Who can I get? And like I was really just like flipping through and Police Academy was on. And <laughs> Michael Winslow, I was like, I'm going to see if I can do this. I'm getting Michael Winslow to come on my show, no matter what. Uh, anyway, I brought a little audio clip of some of his sound effects just to give you guys a reminder of who he is. There he is. This is him in Spaceballs. He was the radar operator. This is when the radar is malfunctioning. And then that he's doing the static. Shit. Shit. Uh, you know, he's making well, You don't need that private. We're right here. Now, what is it? Okay, anyway, all right, that's, that's Michael Winslow. And he was Larvel Jones on Police Academy. And I want to also say I am a big Michael Winslow fan, which is why I got excited about trying to book him. So the first thing I did was uh, I did a web search for his name to find out how I can book him, and it immediately brought me to his booking site. And I printed out a few pages from his site here to share my chase experience of what I went through to try to, to try to book him. So the first thing I saw when I got there was his bio information. He was born in 1958, and it says, Michael Winslow may be available for your next event, with an exclamation point. And I was like, that's perfect. That's exactly what I want to see. Uh, and it said, for booking info, click here. So I clicked there. And it brought me to a page right away. It says, is your budget to pay the artist $25,000 or more? <laughs> it is not. Um, and it says, and do you have a separate budget to cover expenses? And I was like, expenses? Budget? What are these words? <laughs> so I don't have that. And then it says, if no, click the non-sufficient button. <laughs> So I clicked it. I was like, all right, I'm still alive here. Uh, I click it, and a new page comes up, and it says, stop! Read this to avoid sending false information. If you're reading this page, your budget is insufficient. 
I knew that. Um, <laughs> if your budget is not sufficient, we sincerely wish you success as you seek assistance elsewhere. <laughs> so, okay. Um, so basically, they wanted me to give them 25 grand to even make an inquiry about getting Michael Winslow on my show. So there was another button to click and, and it said after that, click here and as an extra smack in the face, it said continue browsing the internet and it gave me the Yahoo URL. <laughs> so I was like, what is this? I just, it was so easy to get Jonathan Ames and Jackie Martlin came right on. What is going on? And if I looked down, there was a bunch of other gibberish and it said, if more explanation is needed, read on. So I read on and it says, there's a section that says exceptions. Click here. So I was like, oh, perfect. This is exactly probably for the type of show I do for people like me. Exceptions. Page opens up. Sorry, there are no exceptions. <laughs> Don't have that. Don't have that. It's all I have to say about that. Uh, if your budget is not sufficient to use our services, we sincerely wish you success as you continue your search. Is is how it sent me on my way. Uh, and then it just says, if you're able to increase your budget to meet or exceed the minimum requirement, please revisit us. So. That was my attempt in booking Michael Winslow, and now I actually had told this story on the rejection show, because I was rejected in trying to book him, and it went over really well, and I actually put it online as a YouTube clip, and it, it got a lot of views really quickly from, I guess, Michael Winslow fans, because all the comments were like, you asshole, like just <laughs> lashing out at me. <laughs> You're so gay, like what's your problem? Michael Winslow's the best. So I, I, I'm a fan of his. I didn't mean it to blow up this thing. And, and I kid you not, I got an email from Michael Winslow himself. And the subject line was, shame on you. <laughs> and this is what he wrote to me. Glad to see you got a few laughs. 28 years, four children later, not sure where you're looking but I'm on the road actively and extremely happy with the smiles that I give on the road. I bet you can come up with something other than bashing your fellow comedians for work, Michael Winslow. Yes, that's how I felt too. I was like, I like you, I was just trying to get you on my show. It's... Anyway, I wrote, I wrote him back. I just wrote, dear Mr. Winslow, what I was poking fun at was the $25,000 price tag that was being asked of me to even make an inquiry. I was pointing out the silliness of that particular website as well as poking fun at myself for being extremely deficient in that area. It was all meant in fun, and I have a deep respect for you and your many talents, and I apologize. Would you like to come on my show and talk about this? And then I sent him the link of where I saw all this information, and I never heard back from him. And that is my story of how I tried to book Michael Winslow. But let's give a round of applause to Michael Winslow because I am still a fan of his and I meant no harm. And thank you guys so much. Thank you. Have fun.
cab driver and I stop and uh, this woman gets in the cab and she look at me and she says, are you cute? I say, what are you talking about? Where do you want to go? And she says, I want to go to Flatbush and we start to drive. And she says, what's your name? I say, Jean-Paul. I say, what's your name? And she says, Marie. I say, what do you do? She says, I design the clothes, the women's clothes. I say, oh, that's nice. She says, yes, you like to see my clothes? I say, what are you talking about, lady? I take you to Flatbush. She said, oh, yeah, you're taking me to Flatbush, but maybe you're taking me further. I say, I don't know what you talk about, lady. She says, how about a cup of coffee? And we can talk. I'll tell you what I'm talking about. So we get to her apartment, and we go upstairs. And she says, look around. You see anything you like? I say, yeah, I like you. She says, I was hoping you say that. She says, come into this room. So I go into her room. There's a bedroom. And matter of fact, there's hardly any space to stand around the bed. The room is not so big, but the bed is so big that there's no room. So I say, hey, how do you get the bed in here? What's important is what you're going to do in the bed now you're here. I say, okay, if you want to put it that way, I understand what you say. But how come you're not romantic or anything? She said, hey, for you, I like a candle. You like that? I said, all right, that's something. How about some music? She says, what, you you need all these special things? You, you, you're not going to be able to perform? I said, what are you talking about performing? Not a dancer, not a singer? She said, no, I'm not talking about the dancing or singing. I'm talking about in the bed. I said, look. You can put the music on, you cannot put the music on, I don't care. All I need is the candle. You put the candle on, I get romantic, then I do what you want. She said, what do you mean I want? I know what you want. I say, you can't read my mind. You don't know what I'm thinking. I'm thinking something different from what you're thinking. She said, what do you think I'm thinking? I say, I don't know what you're thinking. What do you think I'm thinking? She said, I don't care what you're thinking. I only know one thing, that I want you right now in the bed without the clothes on. I say, boy, you work fast. Aren't you hungry? Don't you want to have a cup of coffee or a glass of wine or something? She said, what, you want to be my husband or something? You want me to serve you? I just want a little bit of, uh, of pleasure. I say, pleasure. Now you talk about something I understand. Put the candle and we talk about pleasure. So she made me a cup of coffee. I can't remember how it goes after that. But anyway, I remember it ends up. Here comes a candle to light you to bed. Here comes a chopper to chop off your head. Who told you that? <laughs> My grandfather. He was vaporized when I was eight. This is Risk. Another track from that 50-50 album I mentioned before, that was Los Kinkos, with a track called Girls to Watch Music By. Then we heard a sketch by the great radio artist Joe Frank, that little story of the French cabbie and his friend from Flatbush. This is Dustin Wong, behind me now. One last story from Risk Regular, Mr. Michael Showalter. Mike's new book, Mr. Funny Pants, comes out in February. I probably don't have to tell you he's in the state and Stella and Michael and Michael have issues. We call his story Chase After Chase. Everything I've ever wanted that I've chased after, I haven't gotten. Anything I've ever wanted, I have not gotten. 
And I think it's because I wanted it that I haven't gotten it. I think that's the catch-22, is that if you want something, you can't get it. Which brings me to the great lyric by the Rolling Stones. For those of you that know this band, they've made, I don't know, 340 records. Um, you can't always get what you want. Which I think is ironic for like Mick Jagger to be saying that. Like a guy who owns, you know, islands. He's like, I own an island and I live there, but I can't get every... Anyway, you can't always get what you want, but you get what you need. But if you were here the last time I was here, I gave out the meaning of life and I gave it out for free. For free. If you go to Barnes & Noble, you have to pay $20 to get the meaning of life. The meaning of life is to live, ergo, there's no ending to this story. No big finish. Good night! No, I'm joking. So I was thinking about these incidents of wanting something, and in this very strange way they connect. And I'll start by saying I just moved into, I just and I'm very excited about this. I just, for the first time, I'm a homeowner. I bought a house. Thank you very much. I bought a house in Lefferts Gardens, Brooklyn. It's 100 years old. It's beautiful. And it's amazing to like not live like a, an ant. That's how I've been living. For, I'm 40. I've been living like an ant. And now I'm like, I have all this amazing space with nothing in it, but it's great. Um, so I'll get kind of come back to that. So the first thing that I think I chased was getting fucked up. <laughs> the first time I ever got drunk, I played quarters, quarters, the, the game, a couple of my friends. Me and three, two other friends, there were three of us. I played quarters with two bottles of Moosehead beer. Three people. I got shit-faced. I spent the next 20 years trying to get that feeling back. I remember one night, and this connects to the other thing I chased, which is love. Anytime I've ever wanted a relationship and chased after it, it has blown up in my face. I was puppy love for this woman, and we had dated for literally two weeks. Two weeks we dated. I was in love. We never even made out. I was in high school. We never even made out. I was literally going to marry, in my mind, we're getting married. She goes off, to, she's like, I'm going away this weekend. I'm like, okay, where are you going? And she's like, I'm going to see my ex-boyfriend. I'm like, okay, all right, I can handle that. I'm strong enough to handle that. Make a long story short, over the weekend, my friend convinces me when she gets back from this trip to see her ex-boyfriend, who in my mind, there's no way they're getting back together, um, sweep her off her feet. Like, just fucking put it all out there. So I do the whole Reality Bites thing. I like go and buy a suit. Like I go to the Salvation Army and I'm like, give me the brown one, the three-piece brown one. And I'm like, and I'm like, put the safety pins and the whole thing. And I'm like, this guy, 
She does not come home. I call her. I'm calling, 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 calling your parents. Finally, her mom's like, Michael, she's not coming home. She's staying with this guy. And I'm like, okay, bye. Um, <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm going to kill myself now. See you later. <laughs> so that night, all I want to do is 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 get as close to dead as possible without actually dying. Like one brain cell. If I could just have one brain cell that's just like flickering, flicker, 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 flicker. Beep, 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 beep. That's what I want. And, and I'll just be like so inside my mind and I'll just be like, I feel one burning ember of a brain cell. I hope, I want this feeling to last forever. My friends and I that night Procure a keg. Yeah, a keg! <laughs> Problem being, no tap. <laughs> keg good, no tap bad. For those of you that don't know, you can't get the beer out of a keg if you don't have a tap. It's not like, you know, a bottle of beer where you're just like, oh, if you don't have a tap, the beer stays in the keg. <laughs> but I needed the high. I needed to escape somehow. So I got an axe. <laughs> just an axe. Little old axe. Not a hatchet. Not a machete an axe and proceeded to exhaust myself all night long trying to get the beer out of the keg. Eventually, we got drunk on warm, weird, flat beer and I decided I was going to go back to college the next day, three weeks early. But I'm so drunk that I'm seeing like 12. And I even remember thinking, I wonder if this is what it's like for bees. <laughs> I had that thought, like, I wonder if this is how bees see. I don't even know why I thought that. My friend who's with me, I pass, I mean, I pass out. I like, didn't even make it out of the driveway. I was literally seeing 13 different roads. It was a, I knew better. My friend drives. He drives five hours overnight. I wake up. I'm in Rhode Island, Providence. I went to Brown. I got good SAT scores. <laughs> I, about 10 years ago, stopped chasing that high. I said, you know what? I'm never going to get there. And the last time I drank and did drugs, I was at a New Year's Eve party. And I'd, I'd taken a lot of ecstasy and drank a lot of beer. And I was trying to give people a scoliosis exam. <laughs> and I'm like, is, is this what it's come to? I'm the drunk guy who's rolling on ecstasy at a party who's trying to give people scoliosis exams. I'm in my car again. This time I'm clean. I'm clean. And I'm with my friend, same guy that I drove with 
to Providence all those years before. And a cop pulls us over. And he pulls me over because I have a broken taillight. He was, how can I put this? He was literally out of a Stephen King novel. <laughs> if you've ever read Desperation, it's about this like psychotic, renegade cop. That's who I had. He sees me. I'm like, I'm, okay, I had a broken taillight. Give me my ticket and whatever. He finds out that I have a... I have a suspended license, which I did not even know, because I got pulled over on the Manhattan Bridge for driving, not even for driving without a seatbelt, for being stuck in traffic without a seatbelt. <laughs> I didn't know that I didn't pay this ticket, so I have a suspended license. He calls three cop cars, so there's now six cops. I'm on, uh, in, going to upstate New York. There's six cops, all of them with their lights going, he pulls me out of the thing. I'm like in handcuffs. I'm that guy. Like, or I'm like, ah, oh, that's too tight, man. What are you doing? He puts me in the car. I'm arrested. At one point, he's like, what's in the car? What's in the car? I'm like, nothing's in the car. Search the car. You could look whatever you want in the car because there's nothing in there. I was so happy that all I had, that he, I wasn't drunk, that I was no, there weren't weird bags of whatever in the car. I was like, search away, you fucking pigs. <laughs> I, then when they did the mugshot, I was like, did like a. <laughs> and then I like put my mugshot up on the, on the internet. And I was like, hey, I got it right, so funny. My sister was like, you shouldn't do that. That's terrible. You, I was like, oh, who gives a shit? So now I'm chasing after to buy a house. Living in Brooklyn Heights, we're looking at places. I'm looking to buy a house in a brownstone where there are only two other people living there. So the board is two people. The, so I'm, when I think of a board, I think of like flash dance and there's like a long table. And there's like a bunch of people and they're all looking at me and they're like banging their pencil against the thing and I'm like, sitting in a chair and there's a spotlight against me and they're like, and it's like a whole thing and then I do a dance and whatever. No, it's two people. So we're doing the interview and they're asking us stupid questions and like, you know, I have to be honest, like I think I'm like the perfect person to be accepted by a co-op board because I don't make noise. I, I am a good tenant, I don't like loud music, I, we don't have parties, yada, 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 on and on and on. At the end of the interview, the woman there was a woman and a man, says, why did you get arrested? This happened 10 years ago. And I go, what, I go, what are you talking about? She goes, well, you know it's all over the internet that you got arrested. <laughs> and I was like, uh, okay, I don't think so, because I Google myself every day, but... Um, <laughs> But if you say so, you fucking bitch, if you say so. So we were rejected for this place. Unsummarily, no, no reason given. You can't always get what you want. Can't always get what you want. But now I live in a haunted house that's 100 years old. So it kind of has a good, a good happy ending. Thank you guys very much.
Okay, that wraps this one up, folks. We pack a lot of life into those headphones, do we not? Tell your friends, people. Tell your Mickey Ficken friends. This is a mashup called Do Your Thing to the Music by Lenlo. This was Risk. I'm Kevin Allison. Our live show producer is Michelle Walson. Episode editors David Crabb and Mike Cades. Story editors Jeff Mersel and Andy Croner. Associate producers Nina Moses, Madison Perry, Paul Gale, Jeff Glazer, Chris Castiglione, and Catherine Green. And remember what this bozo once said about Risk? I think of it as our way of trying to get all our fans to give a tiny amount and get a great thing in return. 